everybody, and uh, welcome to DevTalks. I'm Clément Bruno, and I'm a research manager at the Growth Lab. And today, it's my great pleasure to be welcoming Professor Stefan Derka from Oxford University uh, for a session that will largely revolve around his latest uh, book titled Gambling and Development. Um, I'd like to start in the most simple way, uh, really. My question is, why did you write this book? Um, what was what was a question or or maybe the questions within us that you were trying to to answer? Well, well, thank you very much. And look, um, well, thank you for the introduction as well. And it probably helps already to explain a little bit. You know, I'm a development economist. I'm a microeconomist. I do RCTs these days. I used to collect longitudinal data sets. I used to follow farmers for 30 years or 25 years in Ethiopia and keep on going back. So very much a micro person. Um, but at the same time, I've always had that interest on the policy side. And when I had a chance to work as a chief economist at DFID, you know, at the time, uh, it's now been abolished. But anyway, it was definitely quite an influential development agency um, and also investing in a lot of research and, and, and work like that. But when you work more in the policy environment, you know, the big questions are always are, are hanging over you. You know, it's like, you know, what makes in the end a big difference? You know, there's a lot of the small changes we can do. And, you know, I have a lot of belief in lots of small things that we can do. But on the in the end, the big things matter, you know, and the kind of the fundamental difference. Why was it, for example, in our organization in DFID, we felt like, you know, we could make quite a lot of progress with our aid in places like Bangladesh or in Ghana or in Ethiopia where everything we seem to be doing in Nigeria felt like, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. And so for me, the question, the underlying question was a little bit, you know, do I, do I understand well enough, you know, why some of the things we're doing makes a difference at scale and why not? And so this is about an impact question. But once you then deal with an impact question, this more macro question about, you know, what's driving in the end in a country, whether, they are embarking on large-scale growth and large-scale poverty reduction or not, was that hanging over me? And so this is me as a microeconomist having to delve into the bigger questions as well and to hitting fairly quickly that, well, if I look around the world, the, 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 the detailed policy advice doesn't seem to be the biggest factor in change. But it seems to be a lot to do with the big things that's going on. And, you know, um, I remember talking at some point to Francois Bourguignon, who was at the time had just finished to be the chief economist of the World Bank. And he said, you know, once you hit politics, you can't think of anything else anymore because you start actually seeing that in countries, the, a lot of the big things happens by what's happening with the people in power and influence. And it's not... You know, we can give technical advice as economists, but we need to be aware of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture involves politics, involves political economy. And that's what I wanted to write about, that kind of thing that is much harder to test with a, I don't know, with a growth regression. We don't quite do this anymore, I think, uh, across country regressions, maybe some do, but I wouldn't. But also not with a micro regression. I can't randomize political economy at scale. And so kind of thinking, you know, look, there is certain things that are bigger than what I can easily analyze, but I need to begin to understand the politics of places and the way politics and economics interact. And I think I wanted to write about it, building on the experience I had, because I had the lucky thing to work in so many different countries, spending 
a lot of time. I used to have the habit of moving my office in the summer to another developing country and I just worked from there. So I spent time in China, in India, in Mozambique, in the DRC, quite a lot of time that you usually as an academic never had and actually just see what the policy process were, what the politics was. And I just wanted to write, bringing together what I knew from reading the research, but also a lot of the experience on the ground, trying to actually see, well, how does change happen? I wanted to well, go to the idea that I feel is at the heart of the book, uh, that of a development bargain uh, to, to, to sort of organize how we can think about the political economy aspects that you were just uh, mentioning. Uh, and also maybe to talk about why you call it a, a gamble and this risky aspect that, 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 that you feel there is in, in, uh, in trying to take that development or progress uh, path. So I was wondering if you could maybe in a few words um, tell us about the main thesis uh, of the book and why you think it's, it is a useful way um, to approach these political economy questions. So not, not so long ago, Leonard Wanshakon, you know, the economic historian at Princeton, gave a lecture at Yale, and he put it actually very nicely and said, you know, uh, yes, all this kind of historical, call it the um, Robinson Asimoglu type of agenda of institutions, all these things matter, structures matter, colonialism matters, all these things. But he said, even though he works quite a lot on the institutional economics, he said that's like 50%. 50% to understand what's going on in a country is the agency and what he then actually also called the elite, the people with power, not just the president, the prime minister, but the agency of the actors on the ground that have power and influence. So this is how I also want to think about it. And this kind of a very close alignment with the way he thinks about it. History institutions matter, but what happens at a moment in time matters as well in terms of these elite players. And so I talk in the book quite a lot about the underlying elite bargaining, you know, the kind of political scientists sometimes call it political settlement, you know, the kind of the underlying deal between the forces in not just purely in politics, but also in the economy, maybe, well, definitely in the military, probably also in the um, senior civil service, maybe even civil society, journalists, public intellectuals, those people with power and influence in a society could be a 30, could be a thousand, but actually the kind of underlying understanding they have about the, the boundaries on their actions and behavior. It's almost more informal than the institutions, but just how they actually do operate around power and making decisions and so on. So you could have a lot of them. You could say, as it was under Mobutu Sese Seiko, totally acceptable. If you run Congo at the time, it was called Zaire under Mobutu. If you run it as a kleptocracy, purely kleptocracy, where the state if you were controlling the state, you could steal from anyone. Yeah, like he famously told his civil servants when uh, some when he uh, when he had heard that people were complaining about corruption and said, you know, friends, you know, I hear that people are complaining about you that you steal from the people. Can I please ask you not to steal too much and leave a little bit for the next one? Otherwise, it will all go wrong. You know, it's like if if that becomes almost the principle of the kleptocracy in the whole society. You also have an awful lot of states coming out of, often out of independence as well, is that, and often in the political games that are being played, is that if you gain power, you know, you should reward those who gave you power. So it's like pure clientelism. You can either reward people with jobs, with influence, you reward them with, with contracts and so on. So you could have lots of elite bargains implicit deals. So what is then the essence for me in saying, look, 
given that we can have a lot of these, if I start looking what, say, the Chinas or the Indonesias or the Bangladeshis or the Indias after, 90, after the 1990s, or Ghana and Ethiopia between, say, 2015 and 2020 have in common, is that underlying this elite bargain was definitely actions and behavior that were fundamentally focused on growth and development. And that actually that was a, a key part of what they're doing, you know? And I think often in Western countries, we've forgotten that even in our societies, you know, until well into the 20th century, you know, the US didn't really care about growth and development of the broader population. The New Deal probably brought it out. In the UK, similarly, and in most European countries after the First and the Second World War, it became an understanding if you were in power and, and had influence that somehow you have to care about growth and development one way or another. Now, we have actually quite a few societies where that's not the case. We all have societies at some point where those with power and influence start focusing on that. And so I call that a development bargain, where fundamentally the elite bargain wants this, not just in words, not a beautiful development plan, but actually in actions and behavior. Why do I call that a gamble? Because every elite knows the game in town, the easiest game in town to play is the status quo, because they understand it. That's the basis of their power. The distributive politics that everybody gets a little bit, you know, that game in town is what they understand. Gambling on actually a growth trajectory where there is a great chance, and history tells us that, that new elites will emerge, that old elites will be displaced, and so on, is quite a gamble. So you have to have either you're under so much pressure that there's no other way that you can do, or you think you know you have no more legitimacy, or you've come like as it happened in Western countries after conflict uh, in first and the second world war in Europe. You need to start delivering because you have no legitimacy, legitimacy-seeking behavior. It's things like that that often compels an elite to do this. Because growth, yes, it's not a zero-sum game, but distributionally, it's not self-evident that it actually always will be for the present-day elite for to improving. You know, you, you may well lose your power in determining the distribution, and indeed, you may actually be a loser in it. And so that's why the gamble comes into it which makes it even more surprising that so many countries are doing it these days. And I think in the last 20 or 30 years, that's the positive part of the story. Quite a lot of countries did it. And they did it in very different ways, with very different institutional setups, with very different political systems, even with the kind of economic policy making was actually quite a lot of variation in it. That's actually uh, at, the, at the heart of the book as well, um, which is structured around um, country chapters, is to go into the idiosyncrasies of, of each of these places and, and to show that there is no magic recipe or silver bullet to, to strike the development bargain. Um, for those who haven't yet read the book, I was wondering if you could maybe give us two examples contrasting two different um, examples of how very development bargains both proved uh, conducive to, to development. Yeah, so no, definitely, and and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple then indeed. In so, you know, the most obvious one that people always came to, seem to think about is like China, okay? So, and that's actually very striking that, you know, we sometimes forget that uh, China was an absolute mess in the 1970s. You know, Mao, was, Mao died, the Cultural Revolution had, had been raging. 
destabilized society uh, substantially. The Gang of Four, Mao's, Mao's widow, wanted to keep this whole focus on ideology as the basis of all decision-making central. And there you actually got, you know, a real crisis of legitimacy in, 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 in that country. I remember, I'm, I'm actually old enough to somehow remember as a youngster, people talking about, will China uh, persist? Will it continue to exist like this? The Chinese Communist Party was a real crisis. So what actually happens with Deng Xiaoping is as much to do with, you know, convincing all the others in the party to form a coalition of reformers to actually being able to say, we actually need to try to do this differently. We can't do everything based on ideology, but we're going to have to, in the spirit of, it doesn't matter whether the cat is white or black, as long as it catches mice, be far more pragmatic about economic policy. And so actually they choose a model of pragmatism in economic policymaking, but still strongly state-led. Why did they do it? Well, actually just for survival, for legitimacy. There's plenty of writings. And I'm always very struck if I, have, if I have Chinese students in the audience, that's the moment when a lot of them started nodding, that actually the, the underlying legitimacy-seeking behavior, that was actually a crucial part of the 1980s. We need to deliver food security and then growth to the population. That was a, a key part of it. But they went down for state-led development. Yes, they did reform. And of course, they did governance reforms around the economy. You know, it was much more decentralized, but it's hard to say that this became suddenly uh, a simple, totally liberal capitalist economy. Of course, you know, property rights were still very strongly aligned relative to the party and the controlling role was there all, all there. If we then contrast it with, say, Bangladesh, a country that we like to describe us saying, and some people even would say it was a surprise, it was a miracle. In any case, Henry Kissinger was saying, uh, or at least one of his aides wrote or said uh, around 1981, that Bangladesh is a basket case. You know, And I remember my very first essay in development economics was the title, Is Bangladesh a Basket Case? And I'm also long enough, old enough to be able to write and yes, absolutely, because of demographic change, climate, all these things, nothing will ever come from Bangladesh. Of course, I was writing this in the 1980s, when it already clearly, we didn't really know it well, it was actually starting to grow fast, the, the garment industry developed, um, and also this now a country with, Muslim country with girls education and health outcomes for girls being better than for boys, and actually a real success in, in, in poverty reduction and, and, and growth, five, 6% of growth the last 20 years or so. so well, how did they do that? Well, actually, almost the opposite to what China did, in a sense that they had gone after their, they won the independence war in the 1970s. They went through a whole crisis period as well with the famine of the early 1970s, uh, the, the, uh, the execution of the founding, uh, uh, the founding leader of the pre-independence and uh, coups and you know, political instability and whatever but also very little to show for, in fact, a real crisis. In fact, Henry Kissinger had a good reason to call it a basket case by the early 1980s. But interestingly enough, what they did, although they had initially chosen for you know, state-led development, but also they had built up a state rewarding the freedom fighters with jobs in government and the whole kind of things, the clientelist state was built up. You go to the 90, early 1980s, where the government started to take new decisions, but actually quite different to liberalize the fertilizer market, to denationalize some state-owned enterprises, to actually go for a quite a very cautious, prudent macroeconomic policy where they called in the IMF uh, and, and, and they did actually all kinds of structural adjustment. And indeed, 
Sometimes, you know, people in the central bank definitely like to say that this is Bangladesh chose laissez-faire and it's actually total laissez-faire. It's maybe an overstatement. The state plays a role in the whole kind of thing, but it actually very different from the whole China model. And it was definitely the, the entrepreneurship in the garment industry that built it up. And it's now 90% of its exports or something, but also strikingly, this was a state that understood that was not very good in delivering. And actually it allowed in the early, in the 70s, but definitely in 1980s and 90s, to get NGOs to grow. For example, BRAC, you know, economists uh, that, that study this thing, they know it's very well. You know, these programs are very well analyzed and evaluated. But BRAC, what is most striking, well, it is the largest NGO in the world. It is actually a state within the state. You know, the state allowed civil society to become stronger almost than the state on certain things. There is no other country in the world that I can imagine would allow this to happen. You know, India definitely with NGO laws would never allow BRAC to become as big as it is. But that's a self-aware state. So rather than state-led development, it shows a much more a state that says, well, we know what we can't do and we allow other actors to do it. And that's part of the success. So NGOs, BRAC, in fact, aid played a big role there because probably easily more than a billion dollars, if not close to $2 billion, was provided to BRAC over the last, last uh, decade or so by Australia and the UK. Massive financing of their programs. You know, which state would usually allow an outside actor to do this? So it's a very different model. Economic policy, far more liberal and very different ways of dealing with it but actually quite successful. So very contrasting models, uh, not the same level of success maybe than China, but very remarkable from where it came from. Thanks. Um, you started to, to, before we went into these two uh, very interesting and contrasting examples, you started to talk about um, some of the contextual elements, historical context that may preside over, um, you know, um, choosing or opting for a development bargain or not. And uh, so you mentioned the role of, of course, um, the elite's legitimacy um, with this idea that maybe at some point your your back is to the wall and 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 you need to you maybe have a little bit more space to reinvent uh, the, the the growth model or the way things work in, in general. Uh, more broadly, I was wondering how you how you think about some of these either contextual or structural uh, factors that you say are not everything, but they're still there. Um, yeah. and, and some of them might be, you know, um, you're talking about different historical examples. Some of them happen on the back of, let's say, favorable terms of trade dynamics, commodity, commodity booms. Um, some of them happened in other regional contexts that were more or less conducive to, to, to development. And also more structurally, uh, one, one, one very important uh, factor that economists, I think, are very split on is the role that natural resources more structurally play on, 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 on the country's development path. So I was wondering how you, you, you integrated these different factors. If you think there are contextual, external, structural kind of preconditions to striking a development bargain, or, or whether really uh, anything is possible because the shapes uh, such a bargain can take are, are, are very, can be very different. Right. Look, history definitely constrains. It constrains any country, history, geography, all these things will matter. So, so you know, like, like a couple of things, you know, history of China matters here, why China can be successful. 
you know, in a very simple way, 2,000 years of centralized bureaucracy, 2,000 years of, of actually meritocracy in the, in the bureaucratic system, centralized taxation for 2,000 years. You know, if you're ever going to do state-led development, and I could pick a country to do it, I'll probably do it in China. You know, it's like there's a good chance it can work because you have a nature of a state you inherited that actually has features that are not clientelist, that are not kleptocratic. And if you then put them to use for growth and development, you can do it. If I do then the, the reverse, uh, you know, colonialism delivering boundaries and borders in countries that make it just fundamentally different. You know, there's not for nothing, even though I may be slightly dismissing cross-country growth regressions, the correlations are there, you know, ethno-fractionalization, you know that these things are correlated. It's all about how the causalities play out, but they are there, you know, and the fact that you create complicated countries, it's of course much harder to do a deal between the elites in terms of how to set it up. You mentioned natural resources. It's, you know, if, if it is a gamble to go for growth, you know, if you have natural resources, your status quo is so well defined. You know, if I go to Nigeria, I was in Nigeria last week. I had a great time. Um, actually, arguably, there were some private meetings organized with what the organizers said, I'll get you the elite in the room. And I must say the elite was in the room. It was quite striking audiences. I'll write about it at some point. But anyway, but um it was was fascinating to sit there. Some of the richest people in the country, the most, the, the political shakers, the controllers, and whatever, they totally got me when I said, "Look, the Nigerian elite bargain is simply about the distribution of oil. Fundamentally, you have about five hundred dollars per capita. Um, if I divide it amongst all the population, that's nothing. That's two hundred million people. But if I divide it amongst a hundred thousand people, that's a million dollars per capita per year for everybody." We basically have defined the elite bargain in Nigeria. They totally get it. Some get more, some get less, but that's basically the political structure. I put it slightly differently. The, you know, why would you gamble to? It's quite a gamble then to let that go because you're already quite secure to get your million dollars per year. Why would you actually even be arguing for it? And maybe someone will get a hundred thousand and a house in London. Okay, so that's then maybe a bit less, and some get a billion, but. Actually, there is a lot to lose for the elite. If you don't have natural resources, you need every year produce the rents to be able to control. So this is how the political economy of the, of the natural resources, of course, plays a, plays a big role. So you, you, know, you get these factors that, that will shape it. You know? the, the problems of coalescing the elite bargain linked to historical factors, the net natural resource endowments, making it just less likely that you will gamble or indeed you know just your whole history that has that has played played out so these things matter you know but i still stick to it that there are surprising countries you know i'm i'm, I'm talking to you now from mauritius lucky me um i'm in mauritius here mauritius is fascinating because very few people know much about it beyond that it's probably now a high-income country in the early 1960s a nobel prize winner james mead he was a trade economist, actually a brilliant guy. He wrote a piece where he said that basically nothing will ever come from Mauritius. You know, historical structures of huge divisions with uh, people descendants from the French controlling all the land where you have indentured labor from the Indians in the middle. And then you have Creole, um, basically ex-slavery population structures that were no way huge ethno-fractionalization. 
When they get independent, nothing will come from it. 1968, they become independence. Yes, they go into a full crisis fairly quickly. The 1970s were dreadful. But what seems to happen then is by the late 1970s, they recognize, and they is basically both the political elite, strongly supported by the majority uh, Indian descent population, uh, and the business elite, still controlled very much by the French and the sugar elite, they actually make an implicit deal, an implicit contract that has held since then, that actually they are going to go for growth and development. They build up a welfare state over time. And now this is a real welfare state as a high income country. But in the beginning, carefully doing this, but then also going very actively, you know, sugar exporter. They were leading proponents of a good deal with Europe on the Lomé conventions, that the kind of trade deals, early trade deals. They were early movers of the export processing zones. You know, they, they called in the IMF in 83, 84 for structural adjustment. By 1987, they were growing at close to 11% per year and exporting manufacturing. They're now a big financial sector. So again, the agency of people and the way the elite comes together can actually determine that you don't have to fall into this trap. So my argument is really about agency matters. There are constraints in it. History will and institutions factors matter. But there is political agency of those people with power and influence. And again, not just the prime minister or the finance minister, but the business elite and whatever. And so last week, that was my preaching to the in Nigeria, and the press covered it quite handsomely. Is that basically they have a choice between the Nigerianization of poverty, because all projections suggest Nigeria will have the largest number of extreme poor by 2030, or a new elite bargain between business and the political class in Nigeria, because for God's sake, it, it really uh, requires effort to run the economy so badly. Thank you for uh, these very uh, powerful and, and, and candid words, but it's much appreciated to, to hear your unfiltered view uh, about what you've seen in your, in your period. Um, I was wondering about um, what you define as success. My understanding from the book is that your main lens is the eradication of extreme poverty. And that's, that, that's maybe the primary thing you're looking at. Um, now, and actually, I'm slipping in a question received from, from the audience. Um, we were wondering, uh, what, how do you think your reasoning and this question of development bargain applies a bit further away, further up in the development ladder? Is, is it still key, in your opinion, to understand why some countries escape, say, the middle income trap and develop into full-fledged advanced economies? Um, or, or is it something that you feel is most relevant at the early stage of, of, of accumulation and development? So, so in the book, I largely talk about the early stages, okay? And that's consciously to do it, but also it's where the experience that I had. I spent, you know, as DFID was focused largely on the poorest countries, this is where I went. This is where I had time to spend and so on. So I didn't spend much time in Latin America, definitely not on, on in the job as uh, for the UK Development Agency. But I think, you know, and it's really interesting, you know, since then, you know, and since the book has come out, I've spent time again in Bangladesh and now in Mauritius. These are countries in very different levels of development now. Uh, Bangladesh is on the brink of being middle income. Actually, what was the, the success factor of the early stage of development could potentially become now a limitation. It's in the following way, is that, you know, take these both these factors that I, I highlighted, 
the garment industry, when it emerged, these people were not politically powerful, but they could, they could build up the garment industry. And they got a bit of support from the government, but there were not, there was no immediate rent capture and all these kind of things that could have happened in all kinds of other places. Now these guys are in parliament and now they are blocking any form of industrial policy to any other sector, but to the government. So the most of the support still goes to the governments. Well, actually, we desperately need to diversify that economy and move into other sectors. So just was there where the engine of success, they may now become the risk factor in, in, in stagnation. I wouldn't say the same thing with the NGOs, but at some point in terms of the complexity of what you need to deliver, the state will need to be better at social sector delivery than actually it can't just be about almost charitable organizations funded by aid to do this. You need a much more sophisticated model of doing it and the state will probably play a role in that. So in all these cases, the state has to evolve. And that's now the challenge of Bangladesh. So, and that's the beginning of middle income. Actually, the more I look around now and here in Mauritius as well, all the time these elite bargains have to evolve. In fact, for the reasons that we were alluding to earlier is that when growth happens, new elites emerge. That means new elite bargains have to be made. And you can't have anyone blocking. And that actually is the real challenge. You know, and we talk a lot about these growth spurts. You know, Land Pritchard likes to have all these papers going out send. They have some really nice things. And descriptively, you know, a lot of growth are spurts and they, they fizzle out. And I think it has a lot to do with that inability to overcome the underlying political economy challenge to actually restructuring. You know, what is your earlier success needs a new configurations. It may actually need a different type of leader and so on. Think of it in, in Indonesia. That has now had about 50 years of about three, 4% per year uh, growth consistently, except for a brief period in 1997, 70, uh, 1997, sorry, with the Asian crisis. So an interesting thing with, with that is that Suharto and his team were definitely the architects of the early period from 1970 until 1997. Indonesia going to middle income, it needed to rethink how it handled its politics. It needed to go for a more democratization in their case. That was what worked for them and they had to do it. So if you go to Latin America, and I'm very pleased and actually quite struck how many reviews I've had in Spanish and in Portuguese about the book and how much comment and Twitter traffic I've had in these languages which is actually really interesting because I never wrote about any of these places. They recognize very much, I think, in Latin America, the role of all of these elites that, that at some point may have been the, growing, the growth factor and then become the blocking elite that doesn't want to change because it will challenge their position. So I'm working hard at a, at a series of translations of a few pieces in Spanish and Portuguese to feed to the Latin American market, because I think there is an interesting debate to be had indeed in middle-income countries as well, in terms of how do we think these elite bargains. Actually, at the moment, I'm traveling quite a lot. It's a lot that I want to look at middle-income countries now, what's going on there, and, and how this kind of thinking can be helpful there. You know, if I find it's not, then I will ditch it. But I have an impression, it's a general framework, this requirement to keep on having that focus on growth and development is quite essential, I think, when, when societies evolve. So I'm not, I'm not sure this is uh, great news uh, because if I understand well, first of all, you were telling us uh, that there's no magic recipe. Now you're telling us that even if you find the right recipe, the recipe actually changes over time and, and, and you need to, to, to adapt. Uh, I find that, um, of course, very, very very insightful, but also also a lot of work for policymakers and those who are trying to to help them along the way. 
Um, but precisely, I wanted to turn a bit to to to, to action and maybe um, let's say individual agency in that landscape. Um, and to start with, uh, we'll talk maybe about outsiders uh, afterwards. But um, if we think about policymakers from these countries. Um, people who have some agency, uh, but are, are are not at the very top of the government ladder and who want to make a difference and who are aware of the political economy uh, considerations that you're developing in your, in your book. Um, at an individual level, what do you think is, uh, is possible to do and, and, and how can that be taken into account in, in advancing one's uh, work towards uh, economic development? Yeah. So, so maybe the first thing to, to say is that, you know, in most societies, um, people have some agency, at least to do some good things. That doesn't mean that they necessarily can change, okay? There's a difference between being able to do sensible, reasonable things, good things, doing things better, more efficiently, more distributionally sound and whatever, even if they can't change the system. So a mid-level civil servant, still has a role to play to work work within it. But, um, you know, what I find interesting in these countries is that you do find um, typically, and yes, it, it's typically not at junior level, it comes almost by their nature, but like in mid-level uh, people that are involved in business, that are involved also in civil service, that actually can nudge along the, set, the, the, the edges of, 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 of the whole system. So, I'm a strong believer in uh, civil servants. I've been one, you know, public servants. It's actually something that is, um, you know, they don't, in most countries, don't have terribly good reputation. But, you know, well-intentioned can actually, because, you know, they are the ones that need to implement what politicians want. They actually have a big role in also shaping the thinking and so on. And that definitely was my experience that they can be quite influential. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit away of what was happening in Nigeria. I had a close sessions with the 43 most powerful civil servants, a close session. You know, one suggested that the only way Nigeria will change was a revolution. That's quite interesting from as a top civil servant to hear that. And actually, there was a lot of debate that said, no, actually, we are still quite powerful, even though we are not controlling, and the political class is here, very powerful business class, we can actually, you know, within, you know, most countries are actually fairly good laws, so we can actually stop them doing certain things. Yes, we're taking risks, we have to pick our battles, choose our windows of opportunities where, where we can do it. The same in civil society, they can push in most, in many societies, if not most, for some transparency from some nudging along the edges. So I think people can do things. Um, but at the same time, we should have a bit of humility that actually those who really can do the change are probably still these elites. And the simple reason is because they have blocking power. The one power that the elite has, and that's the kind of pessimistic version of the book, the one blocking power that the elite has is to one power that the elite has is to block things because they can actually stop it. So you need to find entry points of some players within it that want to, to change and so on. At the same time, if I look around, you know, I've seen finance ministries in developing countries that actually have very smart technocrats playing the game very smartly, but actually creating the conditions. In all the countries that I looked at, you know, whether it's Ghana, Ethiopia. Um, also in Indonesia, you can almost name the individuals 
in the government. They were not the most powerful people, but actually were very important in driving the change. So I always encourage the economists in these places and say, you know, just align yourself with person X, Y, and Z. And there are these in these countries, you know, and uh, they would know them, say the people that are actually totally honest, that are really committed to have to, to, to actually get growth and develop it in the country. Say, so, you know, align yourself, strengthen them, support them, give them a bit of more attention, you know, find, make sure that they, they become unsackable, that they can't really be blocked. And then you make bits by bits, lots of progress. But um, yeah, so, but the blocking power of the elite, don't underestimate it. So we have to have a bit of humility that a simple sentence, like as long as we spend some money on civil society, everything will change. I'm afraid that's not as easy as that. So I didn't realize we would uh, be covering a career advice here, but I think it's uh, given the audience where we have a, a, a lot of current uh, current students in, in during their grad studies. I think that's very um, an important thing to to keep in mind as well in terms of um, individual strategies. Um, now, precisely, I want you to turn back to these people, maybe uh, those uh, you call the the outsiders, um, because we don't leave in a close, I mean, these countries, the countries you're, you're talking about in your books, don't live uh, as a closed system. Uh, there are lots of exchanges with, with the external parties, which, I mean, you, you'll tell us, but to some extent might be part of this uh, of this elite system that you, that, that you described. So for people looking at this situation from the outside, and I'm thinking about People uh, like you used to be <laughs> in 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 government in in aid organizations. People like us at the Growth Lab uh, who research uh, these topics, but with a view to improve policy. All these people are from the, the the outside. How do you think they can play a positive role in the development bargain development process? And maybe also, what what do you see as as no goes? What what do you think uh, we as 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 outsiders should not be doing. Yeah. So 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 the one thing as an outsider that we definitely shouldn't be doing is peddling the idea that it's all easy, <laughs> that we all have a nice silver bullets, that it's so obvious that tech will change it all, or some kind of one intervention, as long as we scale it, will change it all. So so don't do it. You know, I was in Kenya the other day. Um, the, talking to a radio station, but also giving a talk to some some of the you know international community. Uh, I mean, young young aid workers and so on, and um, and we came to some kind of line is that there's probably uh, four times too many people driving four by fours than actually people who knew the context of these places. So the first thing what you shouldn't do is to go to these places thinking I don't need to know anything about these places. And that's actually general advice. You know, I worked in a capital, like worked in London on development aid. There's far too many people who decide things around some of these countries that have no clue about these places. So even if you're a technical economist, even if you run RCTs, even if you do very specific small things, invest in understanding these places. Because whatever you do, you're going to be far more effective in doing something if you start from some understanding. And understanding has to be not just the history, but that would help, not just the culture. Yes, learn the language, but also actually understand the politics and not just the electoral politics through your own lens, but just very much, you know, who matters? How is power here organized? How is it happening? Because without that, you're just never going to be very effective. 
So, and then come in terms of more, more constructively, you know, how do we think about change then? Okay, so, so, so again, you know, I can, I can, um, I, I know of interventions that will get children to learn much better than otherwise. I know of interventions that will help to uh, make children healthier than another way. However, what I would want us to do is to all the time think about the underlying incentives. Why is the situation as bad as it is? Why is it that actually, what can we change about the incentives that it's not the outsider that needs to come and affect it? And how can we basically create positive incentives for better elite bargains, for, for elite bargains more for development, and actually stop some of the incentives for the very bad ones? Okay, so, so let's do, think, think of three things. One thing is very obviously, this is where the economist comes into it, the economist in me comes into it. You know, once a country tries to export and tries to sell things to the rest of the world, the shenanigans, the kind of playing around by connected business with the government is actually much harder because you have to compete with the world. The political economy of export requires you not to just screw up the whole thing. So it's not just about getting the contract from government anymore to be semi-corrupt or just work from the connections and the whole terrible elite bargains that we'll have from business that just live of the government. So exporting is a great thing. And of course, that's part of why it's been so successful to sustaining development bargains during a huge period of trade liberalization and so on. So that actually the countries that managed to start exporting, say, light manufacturing, which you need a bit of investment and learning how to do it, often kept on doing it because actually it gets a benign political economy as well. So there's actually a political economy reason for why actually export orientation is actually helpful. So anything we can do, and as I told people in Nigeria as well, anything that whereas a local elite or an international community can do to get Nigeria to sell something else to the world than crude oil will be an amazing achievement because it will create business elite that has it in its interest to be actually doing something else than just living off the rents from oil and the political economy around it. So that's one thing. Of course, as so many people say, trade, trade and globalization is half dead. You know, I think there's still going to be opportunities because value chains will have to shift out of China. So Bangladesh and maybe Ethiopia could have had, could have huge opportunities, uh, you know, if they move, move in there because that's the moment. However, there's another thing of how can you create incentives uh, that actually stop some of the worst elite bargains. So I think there's a huge opportunity now because of Ukraine. Why is that? Because, you know, the U.S. and European countries are countries of rule of law, which is, you know, despite the fact that we have allowed all kinds of uh, bad behavior by our companies, not our companies, but I meant financial services and lawyers and, and accountants and so on to, to help with a lot of illicit finance via whether it's directly or indirectly via Delaware or via London or whatever, actually, because we're tightening all these laws, we actually get an opportunity to really properly at last fight illicit finance, not because of all the tax revenue that is lost to Buhari in Nigeria or to Kabila family in the DRC, but because of actually their terrible elite bargains are essentially funded through illicit finance. You know, Myanmar, the regime would collapse if it couldn't rely on illicit finance anymore. You know, that's actually really important, that these things that we actually change it. 
What do we do then finally? Well, um, you know, these are the things that we as outsiders uh, can do. Then for the rest, when we then work much more locally, well, just don't take for granted that every program that looks good doesn't help to embed the elite bargain in a bad way. If I'm doing a health program in Nigeria, at least think a little bit about the fact that Nigeria spends the lower share with budget on health. And it has partly these terrible health indicators because the federal government and many of the state level governments couldn't give a damn. That's not a good reason for us to step in and provide all the aid to the health systems in Nigeria. It's not a reason, good enough reason not to do it, but at least let's think carefully about what are we doing in places where actually we need to step in with semi-humanitarian support because actually states are failing. I'm not arguing for sanctions or withdrawing from aid. I'm not the least to be in that sense, but I'm actually asking us who want to do something to think carefully about what are we doing in these places with our aid, with our support, and keep in mind a good understanding of the underlying political economy of all the things we do. And so doing good is fine, but actually doing good may in the long-term do bad if we're not careful, because we may set in sentence in such a way that actually we perpetuate future generations of children not to be able to go properly to school or learn, or indeed not to get the nutrition programs that we should have, even if we give the perfectly excellent little nutrition or learning program today to the children of today. If you're interested in more development talks in the Growth Lab's latest research, visit growthlab.cid.harvard.edu.